Hi, everybody. Welcome to Osteobites. Thanks for joining us. My name is Christina Iptoma, and I am mom to Osteo Angel Dylan and director of scientific programs at MIB Agents. And today on Osteobites, we are talking with Dr. Lee Hellman and Dr. John Kana about the Osteosarcoma Institute and research initiatives that have been funded by OSI. Thanks so much, Dr. Hellman and Dr. Kana, for joining us on Osteobites today. We're thrilled to have you. And we're also joined by another member of the OSI team, Vanessa Peterson. She's a development manager at OSI and oversees the OSI's fundraising and marketing initiatives. So thanks for joining us, Vanessa. Um, thank you to the OSI team for their support of this episode and for connecting us with our guest today. Osteosarcoma Institute is a nonprofit organization led by osteosarcoma experts from top U.S. cancer centers who together are concentrating on the cure for osteosarcoma. The mission of the OSI is to dramatically increase treatment options and survival rates in osteosarcoma patients through identifying and funding the most promising and breakthrough osteosarcoma clinical trials and science. And in addition to advancing research, OSI also provides a free resource called OSI Connect for osteosarcoma patients. Osteosarcoma experts can discuss available treatments, possible side effects, and provide helpful advice for getting the most out of your visits with your treating physician. And um, I think Dr. Hellman is actually one of those osteosarcoma experts, so you can't really get much more expert than that. So uh, definitely a very helpful resource, and um, it's available in English and Spanish, um, and it aims to help patients and families find answers to their questions. And we actually had Dr. Hellman and Chelsea Blakes from OSI on Osteobites a couple of months ago talking about OSI Connect. So I'll drop a link to that episode in the chat if you'd like to learn more about that program. But first, a little bit more about our guest today. Dr. Lee Hillman has been studying sarcoma biology and caring for pediatric patients with sarcomas for over 30 years. He completed his postdoctoral training at the National Cancer Institute, and then he then became head of the molecular oncology section, pediatric oncology branch at the NCI in 1993. And he served as chief of the pediatric oncology branch from 97 to 2007, and served as scientific director for clinical research in the Center for Cancer Research at the NCI from 07 to 2016. He joined Children's Hospital Los Angeles and the University of Southern California in 2017 as a section head of basic and translational research within the Cancer and Blood Disease Institute and the Division of Hematology, Oncology, and Blood and Marrow Transplantation. And he remains an adjunct professor at CHLA. He has also trained many investigators in the field of pediatric sarcomas over the course of his career. And he's currently focusing on improving outcomes in osteosarcoma as the director of the Osteosarcoma Institute. And we're lucky to be joined by Dr. John Kana, who's a veterinary oncologist, scientist, and entrepreneur. He is the board chair of Ethos Discovery, a 501c3 and incubator of scientific innovation. His mission is to develop innovations in the form of novel diagnostics and therapeutics for both human and animal patients afflicted with similar complex disease conditions like osteosarcoma. And his scientific career most notably included leadership of the tumor and metastasis biology section of the pediatric oncology branch at the National Cancer Institute, and his role as the founding director of its comparative oncology program. Dr. Kana's research career has focused on improving the understanding of the biology of metastasis and osteosarcoma and the use of a cross-species um, mouse, dog, and human with comparative and translational approaches to develop novel therapeutics for osteosarcoma metastasis. So welcome Dr. Hellman and Dr. Kana and Vanessa, and welcome everyone joining us today. Um, please feel free to add your questions for our guests to the Q&A. Um, and then before uh, we let them get started with their presentation, some announcements and reminders, um, save the date now for June 20th to 22nd in Cleveland for Factor 2024. Um, and we're hoping the whole OSI team will be there. So I'm hoping you guys definitely plant that date in your calendars. If you want to get a sense of the full factor experience, we just sent out an email this morning um, with a links to our full program, our highlights video and photo album, as well as links to all the uh, scientific panels. And if you're not on our mailing list, I will also share the links in the chat. Um, we're at the tail end of July and it's still Sarcoma Awareness Month. So help raise awareness and funds for osteosarcoma patient programs, education, and research by supporting our Seeds of Hope campaign. With a $5 donation, you can get a packet of sunflower seeds to plant and help raise awareness uh, during Sarcoma Awareness Month. And if you're like me and you don't have a green thumb, you can simply donate 
and gift one and send a message of hope to an osteo warrior in treatment. And we also have a limited edition super soft t-shirt with a sunflower design. Um, and so I'll put some links in the chat on where you can get a hold of all of those things. Um, and lastly, we have a healing hearts for parents coming up next month on August 16th at 7 p.m. Eastern. And we have a whole series uh, starting in September. Um, I think they're 12 week series for just different groups for healing hearts for parents. We also have new sessions for healing hearts for adult siblings and also a separate workshop for teen siblings. So I'll put um, some links in the chat where you can get more info about that. Um, so that is it for all my announcements. And um, let's go ahead and hand it over to our OSI team to get started on our presentation. Thank you very much for your wonderful introduction as usual. And it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. We're going to talk about sort of a basic overview of the Osteosarcoma Institute, go through our grant process, and then um, I, I will do that overview, and then I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Khanna to talk about our clinical trials research studies and scientific meetings that we have uh, recently or just about to hold. So a little bit about our institute. It was established in 2017, literally right as I got to the uh, Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. I remember Mac and Lisa flew up there to talk me into doing this, and it didn't take much talking into. Um, and it was established because we believe that no treatment options left, quote unquote, is not acceptable. Um, we put together a what I think is a fantastic strategic advisory board that is comprised of many world-renowned physicians and researchers. I'm sure um, I'll show a picture. You'll recognize many of them, too many to mention by name. Um, and we to find a cure, we believe that we have to engage in collaborative work, which is why we love working with this group. Um, one of my favorite groups working on osteosarcoma. We have to be innovative. We have to translate um, the most promising science into new studies. I'm a firm believer that science will drive the innovations that will finally lead to the breakthroughs that we desperately need. We identify and fund groundbreaking studies to generate these, um, to generate these findings that hopefully will translate into better outcomes. To date, we've committed over $5 million to osteosarcoma research, and you'll hear some of the specifics when Dr. Khanna takes over. So our mission is pretty simple. It's to dramatically increase treatment options and survival rates for osteosarcoma patients, as I said, through identifying and funding the most promising and breakthrough osteosarcoma clinical trials and science, which will drive the clinical trials. The picture on the right is, I think, our last strategic advisory board. We meet twice a year. On the upper uh, part of this slide is the people that were in person, and I suspect you will recognize several of these uh, figures, including me and Sean, but also um, Alejandro, Katie Janeway, Richard Gorlick, among others. And then below are the people that uh, attended virtually um, Bill Tapp is a world-renowned medical oncologist that focuses on osteosarcoma, um, among others, um, um, and and some of our some of our other other members. So we have organized ourselves into four committees that are really to get our work done. The first committee, going from the top, I'll be going from the top in in uh, um, um, around the circle here. Um, in uh, um, from top to bottom, from right to left. Um, so the first group is called Science. Chan made all these, I think, Chan, you named every one of these uh, acronyms, but Science stands for Scientific cor uh, cor Correlates and in Innovative Emerging New Technologies. Um, it's to encourage novel, high-risk, high-impact studies that, apply to cut that will apply cutting-edge technologies to increase our understanding. And I think all of you understand there is virtually a revolution in innovative uh, technology. You've all heard about uh, chat GPT, but that's a small part. And there are many things going on in our world that we believe will really help us better understand and hence better treat these patients. The BOP is what we is the, our brokers of osteosarcoma progress. This is our committee that works as a liaison with biopharma industry 
um, and to we get many calls now, um, not the least of which is due to the Race Act. Thank you, Nancy Goodman. And uh, that when we get calls about small companies that are interested in doing clinical trials or preclinical trials in osteosarcoma, it goes through our uh, brokers of osteosarcoma in progress. At the bottom, the yellow is our development committee. We can't exist without funding. Um, and that's uh, um, fundraising and development strategies currently chaired by Brad Alexander. I should mention, I forgot to mention the science currently is chaired by Brian Compton and it was previously chaired by Richard Gorlick. And the um, Brokers of Osteosarcoma Progress is currently chaired by Laura Davis at Seattle and was previously chaired by uh, Katie Jangler. Last but not least is our SIFT committee. I don't know how you come up with these acronyms, John, but John's the best. He says he has an advisor, but that's Strategic Initiatives Funding Team. And that uh, is, is, is tasked with um, engaging the best scientific programs and teams with our research agenda. So we're out looking for new people to bring into the field whenever we see something. And John will talk a little bit more about that. John, that group is now co-chaired by John, who you'll hear from in a minute, as well as Bill Tapp, who I just mentioned, who's at Sloan Kettering. So how do our grant teams work? We have, um, nothing gets funded without peer review. And our reviewers are um, comprised of outside reviewers that we solicit from around the country. And actually, we have a, a reviewer that's been working with us for a long time from Canada, from SickKids. Um, and that's so we have usually uh, reviewers. It's usually about um, eight or 10 or 12 reviewers that review these grants. If they're scored, oh, excuse me, it then goes to the executive committee, um, which is comprised of the of myself and Sean and, um, and several others, uh, uh, mainly including Mac Tishner, who's our CEO. We review... Um, uh, the the results, the scoring, and we select those that we can afford to fund. And that, of course, is supported by a terrific administrative staff, including uh, Vanessa, who's here on the call, but um, many others, at least three or four others, working really hard to make sure these grants get funded to the source and get up and running as quickly as possible. We also are really interested in having funding collaborators um, as I said, we believe this is this this breakthroughs we need is going to require team science. We recently had a co-review um, with the Gateway Foundation for Cancer Research, where um, we worked on a, um, a uh, we developed the infrastructure so that uh, clinical trials, because they only they only fund clinical trials, would be co-reviewed by the Gateway uh, folks and simultaneously by us. Um, they were all scored. Unfortunately, we didn't fund any of those uh, this year, but it was a great uh, learning opportunity, and we plan to continue to do these um, uh, uh, collaborative grant reviews for clinical trials. And we also have several other groups that have co-funded studies that we've already approved, but they're particularly interested in the subject, and then they may provide additional money that frees up money for us to fund other things. So uh, this is our what we actually uh, fund. Um, we fund multi-year grants with um, anywhere from two hundred fifty thousand up to eight hundred thousand dollars for the uh, duration of the grant. Of course, the most expensive grants are our clinical trials, but we also fund. Uh, we talked about correlative studies which often use novel technologies trying to understand uh, matching um, uh, uh, findings in the lab to predicting outcomes for patients with particular treatments, and translational studies, which are sort of preclinical to clinical. Um, we have a, uh, as I, uh, we've talked about, we have a review process every year that is two phases. We have a call for letters of intent and uh, that new cycle is going to start in September. So if anyone's on the call that's doing research and is interested, please look at our website. Um, the new letters of intent will be due in September. Those letters of intent are reviewed by the same review committee that I just mentioned. Um, and the top ones 
usually we end up, um, I don't know, getting in the range of 27 or 28 LOIs, and we end up reviewing about 10 or 12. So about half of them, or maybe a little less than half, maybe 30%, are then asked for a full proposal. I should mention, and this is, uh, this is really Dr. Khanna's influence on us, it's a very collaborative process, even with the LOIs. We give advice because we have experts reviewing them, and there may be suggestions we make to consider focusing more on one area than another, even for those that don't get invited to try to help them for the next um, cycle. Yeah, so we have one other process that I didn't talk about, which is the discretionary grant process. So that was something um, um, uh, that Dan von Hoff, who you had a, there was a picture of him. Dan has been doing phase one, two clinical trials since I was a college student. I actually worked with him when I was a college student, pre-med student. So I've known Dan my whole career is probably why I went into um, oncology. But we look um, to find beginning stage projects to provide them with $25,000 or less um, that will get them going. That's sort of a catalyst to provide this innovative work to move forward that can then lead to a, a grant proposal, either to us or to others. Um, we're really looking for projects that aim to establish feasible and progressive new ideas or innovative technology that drives a deeper understanding. Um, and the way we fund it is um, the um, investigators that we identify are asked to uh, submit a two-page project summary, um, and, and then that's reviewed and the decision is made whether we can provide this catalyst funding, if you will. And, and we ask our SAB members to identify such projects at any meeting they go to, if they see a poster, if they're at a conference and something strikes them as something that we should um, use, the, um, use them to try to get them involved in osteosarcoma or if they're just starting out and they seem to be very promising young investigators. So we've funded a number of different projects. With that, I'm going to turn it over to John. Dr. Hellman, just quick question on the discretionary grant. So those are those are off cycle, right? Those can happen at those can, yeah. So if you know, if you go if I'm I'm out or Dr. Khan is out or any of our board or anyone that works with us is at a meeting and they see a really interesting, usually it's a poster, but sometimes it's a oral presentation. You go up and talk to that person and say, Hey, would you be interested in using this to study osteosarcoma? And if they say yes, then we, we um, talk to the um, executive board. We then ask them, usually, I don't remember saying no to any of these yet. We ask them to submit a two-page proposal. Now, they don't all get funded, but if they look interesting, um, we can then provide them with funds. That's discretionary funding that, that we have at our disposal, independent of our sources for the larger grants. So you'll hear about all of these in, uh, in Dr. Khanna's continuation of this discussion. Okay, well, well, thank you, Lee, for the, the handover of the baton. And uh, I'll start by just uh, making sure we recognize Dr. Ira Gordon. Ira Gordon is a veterinary oncologist and uh, my business partner, and he is the acronym RAIN Man. I'll send him any sentence and he'll turn it into an acronym. So it seems like I'm coming up with him, but I'm really not. He is. He's the one who's doing this. Uh, and thank you, Christina, for the earlier introduction and the opportunity for us to continue this collaboration with uh, MIB. Just to build on your question, Christina, you know, the idea behind this discretionary funding process is to replace the typical grant-seeking RFP LOI process with a facile mechanism, for especially for people outside the field who need a little bit of support to generate data that will allow them to bring their innovation into the osteosarcoma arena. So within the um, more typical responsive RFP process, so if I think about our entire um, research mission, it's we attempt to balance the traditional approach where we ask for good ideas and respond by providing funding, which is a very you know traditional approach, which I describe as responsive, very important approach to doing this work with a an alternative that 
builds on the strength 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 of the strategic advisory board that we mentioned. And in that effort, we're more prescriptive where we say, these are our ideas. We don't have the answers, but these are our specific ideas and we want work done in these specific ways. And that's a more prescriptive approach. So the balance between responsive and prescriptive funding is sort of a tenant and a differentiator for the Osteosarcoma Institute and our scientific mission. In the summary of the work that's funded um, in the translational studies, I'll just quickly uh, review them. So Dr. Gorlick at AMD Anderson is developing novel um, drug antibody conjugates specifically for osteosarcoma, and they have a mechanism to bring these then new drugs into the clinical arena. So that's a important one for us. Peter Skachiri, recognizing that osteosarcoma is a disease of altered transcription, is looking at drugs, CDK inhibitors, to um, target that altered transcription and potentially reduce metastasis as a problem. In similar work, Ryan Roberts, who I know is involved in the work at MIB, looking at the cellular, cellular mechanisms to deliver metastasis and osteosarcoma and how we can um, target those cellular interactions that deliver metastasis in children. So Dr. Valera at University of Minnesota, in a cross-species effort between the dog and the human, developing uh, NK cells for immunotherapy, and these are armored NK cells that are, rather than CAR T cells, they're CAR NK cells, that he has a industry-like effort to build these cells and produce them at scale and deliver them to patients, testing that whole process in the dog as a translational process into the to the human. And Dr. Jason Eustein, looking at the rationale to combine immunotherapy approaches in mouse models and come up, come up with a combination that sort of cracks the nut in osteosarcoma in regards to delivering effective immunotherapy. And then Dr. Sweet Cordero, recognizing that there's an altered genome in osteosarcoma that should activate this sting pathway, and that should suppress the cancer growth and metastasis. And for some reason, it doesn't. So Alejandro is digging into why it doesn't and how we can use drugs to turn on this silenced sting pathway. So in the correlative studies, this is another area of great interest to us. Um, so the idea behind these correlative studies is to recognize that there's an important mandate for us to do ask scientific questions within human clinical trials in a way that those questions have not been asked previously and use our board to guide the conduct of those scientific studies within clinical trials. And Brian Crompton doing important work to measure the effect of drugs and the effect of biology on tumor cells that are circulating in osteosarcoma patients within clinical trials. And Dr. Sayer at the University of Florida has developed a novel vaccine approach for osteosarcoma that's built on a successful approach in other pediatric cancers. So we're really excited about those trials launching. And what we're specifically doing is trying to understand how these vaccines elicit the appropriate immune response and how we can take that knowledge to, again, build combination approaches. And on that same theme of how do we combine immunotherapies to deliver a benefit in patients, Andy Livingston at MD Anderson working on a existing drugs that should be combined now in clinical trials and patients with immunotherapy. And then last one on this page is Dr. Janeway's work, um, which recognizes that the genome of osteosarcoma is complicated and it must rely or hypothesize that it relies on a very strong DNA damage and response mechanism. And the question of, can we use unique drugs to muck up that DNA da damage and response response in a clinical trial that she's doing at MD Anderson? Actually, it's at Dana-Farber and at uh, UCSF. Sorry, John. No, thank you. That's my mistake. Uh, so the last one is uh, to highlight the discretion grant process. So Dr. Weiss a good friend of all of ours, you know, has a very interesting model of osteosarcoma in mice where he can track the fate of different cells and different states of differentiation. 
And this was proposed as a really interesting grant to us. And rather than just give advice on how you may mod modify this approach, we had some instincts that this would be a very important model to pursue from this perspective of differentiation of cells in osteosarcoma. So we provided seed funding in the form of the discretionary grant for Dr. Weiss to take a slight pivot in his work and and build on this MOS model, which we're all very excited about and really hopeful that he can turn this into funding from a variety of much larger sources now. So as a balance to that responsive and conventional approach to doing and supporting cancer research, an example of the prescriptive approach is for us to say, let's convene small meetings of experts in very specific fields and have them help us develop an agenda for research around specific topics. So one of them is the surface of osteosarcoma. So what are the proteins expressed on the surface that can be targeted by a variety of different therapies? And we're calling that the surface cell meeting, which will be this coming fall. The completed meeting is the complex osteosarcoma genome symposium, which recognizes that osteosarcoma is unique in the structural complexity of its genome, and that often comes from an explosive event called chromothripsis. And the question in that meeting really was, is there something about this complex genome that lends itself to a dependency that could be targeted? And that was the charge of the meeting. What can we do in regards to translation to take this knowledge about the complex genome and develop a, a therapeutic approach? That was a really interesting meeting. And now building an agenda for a research strategy to explore how we do that translation. And a really interesting meeting for me was a meeting that recognized that the first diagnosis of osteosarcoma could have been, could have been made 65 million years ago in a dinosaur. And that dinosaur was um, identified the fossil in Western Canada of a 65 million year old fossil. And so it raises the question that Clearly, evolution needs this problem of osteosarcoma to emerge for some evolutionary beneficial reason, and obviously it creates this devastating problem that we're all trying to conquer. But maybe there's something in that story about evolution and the dependency on this disease for evolution for us to flip the coin and turn it to, into a, a switch that we can turn off to treat the disease. So these are the meetings that we convene as a means to prescribe questions, ideas of experts in very specific areas in small meetings. Really exciting for us to see these meetings come forward. And you can see Dr. Hellman here holding court at a, this is a, an NCI event, but this is sort of the setting that we like to reproduce, small meetings of experts in the field. Thank you, uh, Christina. Thank you, Dema B. And Thank you for the collaboration and the, the 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 dual interest we have to work together. And thank you to the patients and the families that we're all trying to solve this problem around. And I'm going to turn it back to you, to Lee. I, well, I just want to add thank you to our patients, our care providers, which are way beyond, you know, it's a team. You know that. And also our advocates. Um, and you all keep us going. And we're going to crack this. We better. So, um, and uh, we're happy to take any questions. I, I know we went through things very quickly, but we wanted to make sure we left time for for questions and discussion. It's there are in. Yeah, that's perfect. We had um, a couple questions already come through, and um, and so encouraging. First of all, to kind of see all the work that's being funded, but also these. Um, you know, kind of, I think, novel approaches to to funding, like the discretionary grant, I think is really great, and uh, the symposiums that um, you've started. And so kind of on that theme of collaboration, one of the questions that came in was, um, uh, when you look at PubMed, there are a lot of new articles about osteosarcoma from all around the world. How do you track these uh, news in order to work faster and not to duplicate? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I would say we do it to the, the best of our ability. We're all scanning the literature, um, and that's part of when we see something that looks quite interesting. I have to say Dan Von Hoff is our champion of that. 
he'll find something and they'll point it out and we'll look at it and we've caught that we'll contact them and say hey this is really interesting we didn't know about this you know i i have to say i i i really want to build a a a huge group that all works together take the same approach that oppenheimer interestingly with the new movie we need to do that we need to take that approach and really put the best minds people that have never thought about osteosarcoma those of us that have been thinking about a long time and work together and think about different approaches because i have to say i started my fellowship in 1983 and i can say for certain that i still treat patients with osteosarcoma the same way as i did then and that's just not acceptable so we do the best we can and that's what um John was also referring to when we bring in people, the the um, the uh, complex genome, we brought in people that didn't even know osteosarcoma existed almost. Um, as we just want to stimulate discussions so the end, make sure we do not duplicate them. Uh, this is too hard a problem. I mean, I really want to see a Manhattan Project to make this, um, because failure just isn't an option. Sorry if I'm preaching, but I'm pretty confident about this. Um, so I have some questions more just about the logistics of the grant, because I imagine we hopefully have a lot of researchers on this, um, listening into this, who just are interested perhaps in applying for the grant. So um, so it looks like, especially the ones that you kind of went through, a lot of them were kind of in the 500K range, and you mentioned the range is kind of like 250 to 800K. So um, are there different kind of funding mechanisms for different budget levels, or is it basically just kind of you can submit within that range and? Yeah, well, we sort of think the correlative studies, and, and so the one that Dr. Kana mentioned, the, uh, the study that's looking at a um, an mRNA vaccine from the patient's tumor to try to help the immune system respond to that tumor, that's funded, the clinical trial. What they don't have money for is to do the studies in the lab that if we're ho if we're lucky and there are some responses to to identify what signals a response so that we can treat patients that are more likely to respond. So we're just funding the correlative study on that, not the clinical studies. And those tend to be more at the two hundred fifty thousand dollar level. The you know the five hundred thousand dollar grants are more translational science that are you know trying to develop new models new uh, preclinical drugs um, to show, you know, combinations that, that Sean mentioned. Um, and if there's really a clinical trial to be done, we know those are more expensive. And so those are usually funded up to $800,000. And we always, every year, we have a certain amount of money. And so we always have to figure out, you know, at the end, we get more studies we'd like to fund that we can fund. So we try to spread it around. But on the other hand, we try to fund the most exciting studies that we can identify. It's tricky, but I hope that's understandable. It's all listed on the website for those of you that are interested in applying. If you go onto our website, there's a very clear um, uh, description of it. And I think we're having a, um, a, um, a discussion for any interested applicants um, where Chan and I'll be there to go over questions and answers. We, we found that that might help um, people understand as they are about to write their grant. Um, so we, we try to do this in as, as a um, supportive as we can to tell them these are what this is what we're looking for. This is the money, you know, go at it. I, I think you know again, none of us have a monopoly on great ideas. Otherwise, we would have solved this. So we're looking for ideas everywhere. I'd look for him in an elementary school if a kid had an interesting idea, to be honest with you. Well, can you can you talk a little bit about that, actually, like the review criteria? Well, I mean, I think it, we want it to be something that um, we feel is highly scientifically um, uh, supported. Um, that can, that is, so for a clinical trial, to have someone put in a, a proposal that's never run a clinical trial probably not going to get funded because you have to know how to run a clinical trial. It's a real skill set. Um, so we, we need to think or believe that they have provided in the grant the 
um, data that they can do a clinical trial. Some of the things we look for is um, what was your accrual for the you know the last clinical trial you ran. We're not interested in funding a clinical trial that will take 10 years to finish because the technology is changing so quickly, it'll be irrelevant almost. So, you know, one of the things we're looking for is can they do the clinical trial? Is it scientifically supported? Um, and in the translational studies, we're just looking for the best science that's focused on understanding a problem that we don't understand, that we need to understand in osteosarcoma that hopefully can lead to a new approach. And the correlative studies were looking, and the, the correlative studies are the hardest to get funded in osteosarcoma. You know, the NCI will fund the, fund the grant, fund the grant to do the study, but they won't fund the expensive studies in the lab on the patient samples. And so, um, you know, um, we, we try to do all of those. And we'll try to explain that in our, Chelsea's not on the call. I don't know, Vanessa, if you remember, but I think it's scheduled for some time um, in early, um, is it September? I think when the when the when the call comes out, that we'll have a date where anyone that's interested can get on the call, ask questions, and we'll try to respond the best we can. I don't know, Sean, if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, no, I think uh, you covered some important points. But Christina, I guess uh, you know the range of uh, funding levels are really defined, as Lee said, by the nature of the work between translational being at the lower end of that range of funding and clinical being at the higher end of the range. Um, um, I think there's two things I wanted to pick up from Lee's comments, uh, which is important. And, and the most important is that the best science wins. And um, we have, um, a will, we've shown a willingness to be flexible in regards to how we engage investigators. Dr. Weiss is a great example. So he was very thoughtful and careful to put together a very translational um, grant proposal, because that's what we put forth an RFP for the translational RFP. But uh, what we saw was some really great basic science within his grant. And so through the discretionary process, we, we, we had a conversation with them and said, we really think this is a missing piece in the field, and we'd love to help you support this, even though it's not going to be as translational as you had imagined. So there's a lot of flexibility that we've shown and want to show as we engage these creative people and their new ideas. Um, a question came in, and it's actually, it says, by each study you mentioned a year, I assume it's a starting year, how long the study takes. Um, but maybe you can talk also more about, because um, you mentioned there were multi-year grants. So are they all? They're almost all, they're almost all three-year grants. Okay. And, and I should mention, we require a six-year, um, a six-year, six-month um, progress report, and and you know, if some of these studies are so innovative that the technology just doesn't work, and maybe after a year they just figure out they can't go down this path, that's okay, and it'll be in the progress report, and that may be the end of it, and we wouldn't continue the funding, but it's usually a three-year um, funding. Um, and and uh, we require a, uh, every six-month progress report that we all review and, and make sure everything's on track. And again, it's not punitive. It's to interact. So if we feel like there's a problem, we'll we'll sit around and talk about it. And see, and we did this with Ryan Roberts, I remember. Um, so we try to come up with something. Okay, if this isn't working, how can we how can we push it? And so it just. Um, but in general, we the funding is for three years. So when you put your um, budget together, it's usually a budget for year one, year two, and year three, up to five hundred thousand, eight hundred thousand, whatever, whatever. Great. And um, so I wanted to ask, like some of the when I look at the uh, grants that have been funded, the pro the uh, projects that have been funded. Um, most of them do focus on systemic therapies, like targeted therapies or immunotherapy. And just curious, like thoughts on um, different modalities, like IR techniques or radiation therapy, or, and I think there's probably kind of more kind of ongoing studies on combinations, but. Yeah, well, actually it's funny you mentioned that. There's a, um, we're, we're looking at a, um, uh, with our, with our um, discretionary funding, um, there's a, um, 
Um, something that's been used in, in uh, brain tumors where they use um, uh, radio frequency or magnetic fields. And there's been some response in brain tumors. And so we're interested, maybe magnetic fields for lung metastasis is worth pursuing. We've had several discussions with them, and we're hoping to get that discussion continuing. Um, they've had an approval for their, uh, um, I forget, but it's magnetic therapy, magnetic fields. Um, and they've had approval for some specific brain tumors. Um, you know, it's a bit of a problem. You have to wear this thing all the time, but we're really interested in in some of those other therapies. And of course, we're interested in radiotherapy combined um, with other therapies. There's been some interest in um, combining radiation therapy with immunotherapy because it may uh, release novel tumor antigens that can, then could be and there's a study going on in another sarcoma, liposarcoma, and lyomyosarcoma. I mean, so, you know, we're open to any any modality that seems to, seems to make sense. I mean, as I said, we don't have the answers. We just know where we need to push, which is better science leading to better treatments. And let's ask Christina, if I could uh, just add to your question. I think that the sort of unifying theme behind a lot of the science that we're most excited about is um, approaches that have a, a rationale that'll address the problem of metastasis in, in patients. So the result of that interest is systemic therapies. But as Lee said, there is a rationale biologically to combine radiation therapy with immunotherapy for a number of reasons. And so that becomes another area of interest. But it needs to be, it needs, we, we need to see that there's preclinical data that supports that approach. I mean, you can't just come up with, you know, I always tell people the difference between philosophy and science is philosophy, you have a great idea, but it can't be proven or disproven. In science, we have to prove our hypotheses are either right or wrong. And the key is to, if they're proven right, pursue it. And if they're proven wrong, stop pursuing it as quickly as possible so we don't waste more time and money going down a rabbit hole, which we've done a lot in this disease. Um, I had a question back on the whole thing on the correlative studies, because I remember when I was kind of first learning about this, I was surprised to learn that that's not considered just kind of a standard part of the project that would be funded. Because especially now in this day and age when we're talking about precision medicine, and we actually also have the technology and the tools to more quickly and cheaply kind of evaluate, um, you know, these samples. It just seems like it's a very key part of the learning that comes out of a clinical trial. So surprising that it's not, you know, funded normally as part of that trial. And I'm just curious, is that like a, you know, still kind of a longstanding thing from before, before we had these new technologies that made it pretty standard, I think, now for us to be able to do that. And do you think that might change in terms of just what funding encompasses when you're talking about getting funding for a trial? So that well, people have to pursue these other grants to get the, you know, piece. Well, I could go through a long discussion. It's mainly money, right? And so there are some correlative studies. For example, if I'm doing a study that's looking at a, 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 um, a, a, a drug that makes P53 work again. I could build into that study to make sure, because about 10% of patients don't have active P53. So I could put in as my uh, eligibility requirement, we have to show that a patient has lack of P53. That would be fun. But if I wanted to on the study and we saw a few you know, responses, if I wanted to take those tumors and really digest them and look at the molecular and the immunologic milieu of that tumor, that would be considered extra to run, from running the study itself. You can apply for funding, but there's very little funding available. They're the hardest thing to get funded. Um, of course, I think you would think it would change. Um, so. If you build in, a, you know, if you're running a genetically driven study, you have to do a sequence. That'll be funded because it'll be part of the 
eligibility. But the extra science you want to do is sometimes very hard to get funding. Um, and I, I think it's mainly money, Christina, more than anything else. Um, so, you know, let me just uh, give you a little insight to discussions that Lee and I have literally had for three decades. And, and that is that, yes, it is money, but it's also really hard science to do because you have to modify sometimes the clinical questions so that you're not just collecting blood samples from patients and not really having a, a cohesive scientific question to ask with those samples. And so getting tissues from patients within the clinical trial, modifying the design of the human clinical trial so you have a, a good scientific question is hard stuff to do and you have to have expertise from basic science to the you know, the clinical all at the same table. And that's that's hard to do. And and just one other thing that came to mind, I think since John talked about this being, you know, we've been fighting this battle for 30 years. Um, right now, I could say um, that to fund um, doing sequencing of a osteosarcoma tumor, it's never been shown to benefit. And therefore, the NCI isn't going to fund it until you show it has benefit. I think that's backwards. We have to learn to, you know, to figure out where it will have benefit. But anyway, it's a real funding issue. I mean, it's a very complicated issue. Um, so I wanted to also ask about uh, canine trials versus human trials. Um, not that they're mutually exclusive. And I know I think you'd mentioned that um, Valera, Dr. Valera had uh, his, his NK cell trial was a canine trial, but um, canine trials seem highly translational, right? Like more so than um, in a mouse model. And I imagine that the cost is actually a lot less than in a human trial. So I'm just curious, like what is the average cost of a canine trial versus human trial? And, and just um, kind of thoughts thoughts on all the, uh, the um, possibilities of potential of canine trials. Yeah, so I'll take a little bit at the first end of this. And that is to say that We've built into the RFP for all of our studies the interest to look across a number of models. It doesn't mean dogs are better than humans or mice or anything like that. It's just to say multiple questions, multiple models is better than one model. And so that that's a priority for our work. There are questions in drug development that are not answered well in mouse models and similarly not answered well in human clinical trials. And many times those questions are answered well in a dog trial. And when they are, we're going to be very interested to support those unique questions that are hard to answer. But that that's sort of the work of figuring out when a model answers the question that's most important. And it could be a dog, it could be a mouse, and it could be all of them. What about cost, John? That, that, that... Cost is a highly variable uh, depending on the, the study. But let me just give you an easy example, and then we can ask Lee for the cost. So if you were to take a drug, a new drug, and ask, is this drug tolerable in a cohort of patients, dogs in my hand, human patients in Lee's hand, and ask is, are the pharmacokinetics reasonable enough to predict the drug could do something beneficial? In the dog, that's about a $200,000 study. And so Lee can give you the equivalent in the human. Yeah, it's probably a five, six, seven hundred thousand. It's probably at least double. Yeah. So that yeah, I mean, listen, we've uh, we've formed the uh comparative oncology program together when Sean and I were at the NCI because in some in some cases it can save money it's it if it's used in the proper way. I think what we all have to understand all of these preclinical models are just what they say. They are models, and they're not always predictive. Sometimes they are, and sometimes they aren't. Um, and and so the nice thing to me about you know in we, when we do mouse studies, we're either putting a human tumor into a mouse, which is nothing like what it is when it's in our you know in our own body. The whole immune system is completely different or even in a genetically engineered mouse model, we we are driving the tumor with one or two mutations. When we look at human osteosarcoma, it's got 5,000 mutations. So 
you know. On the other hand, a dog develops spontaneous osteosarcoma just the way our patients do. And so in many ways, from that perspective, it makes more sense because the immune system and the tumor grow up together just like they do in patients. And so I think there's certain things particularly um, that we could understand better if we use the model and ask the right questions. Any model works if you know what question to ask. Um, so I know uh, research takes a long time. <laughs> and some of the these grants, I think the, the oldest ones are from 2019. But can you discuss um, outcomes from some of these earlier grants? Um, and for example, if they're preclinical studies, are they on track to go to clinical trial? Um, and also maybe kind of address how you measure success of a study uh, or RI, because, you know, majority of these don't end up something in the clinic, right? Um, but it was money well spent to some extent. And so how do you measure that return? Yeah, I'm kind of looking at some of our, um, I, I think um, many of our translational studies need another step. And so they're, they're you know, going forward with a slightly different um I, I'm just trying to see, uh, you know, I just don't have it in my fingertips. Certainly, I know that the, that the clinical study, that the first clinical study that was really cheap, not very expensive, it wasn't $800,000. It was the one done by Dr. Livingston because it was part of a larger study across many sarcomas. So we just funded the osteosarcoma component of that. Um, and that study was completed and was negative. So that was a negative study. So we're not going to continue. And and unfortunately, um, the the correlative studies that they were able to do in the of the patient's tumors basically to me just showed that the drugs didn't do what they were supposed to do in the patients. So that's worth knowing. So that's a reason to think that's not a real area to pursue. Um, some of our, uh, one of our, the clinical study that was uh, done by Dr. Scaccheri um, was quite interesting. I mean, they found a lot of uh, interesting um, uh, chromosomal structural changes that led to activation, as Chan said, to certain um, uh, cell cycle genes. Um, I, it, but it just didn't. They didn't pursue it because it didn't look strong enough yet. But there's probably going to be more work done in that particular area. Um, yeah, this is hard. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, but you never know. You just never know. Um, and my own personal belief is, um, we're going to have to use every modality available to us. We're going to have to use surgery. We're going to have to use systemic therapy, immunotherapy, and who knows what else is going to come. Um, so, um, and one of the really tricky parts about osteosarcoma is what Chad mentioned, which is this chaotic genome. So the thing that's almost uniform in all of these patients is a P53 loss, and we call P53 the guardian of, guardian of the genome. So as John said, maybe if we take advantage of that chaos and say, how can we make that an Achilles heel? That's intriguing to us. And that's why we held that meeting. Um, and I'm hoping we'll see some very interesting ideas come out of that. Um, we're not going to solve it in a year, um, but we're not going to give up. And we're going to keep pushing on things that look promising. But, you know, I hate to say that because I know you know, when it's you, you want something different, but that's why we're trying to get as many things to test in the clinic as quickly as possible. That's really, we don't want, um, and now I believe, I'm a firm believer that some of these discoveries may come from a lab that's just working on nothing to do with osteosarcoma, but how chromosomes form and unform, how transcription occurs, but maybe an insight in that area will give us an idea. I'm just off to see. And we're going to just keep knocking on doors. Um, so we almost running out of time, but I have a couple other questions I want to squeeze in. So we might do a little bit more rapid fire, but I wanted to address one of the questions that just came in 
Um, so in the idea such as application of magnetic fields and therapy, which is really novel in osteo that you mentioned, what would need to be demonstrated to bring that therapy or something like it forward? We're trying to talk to these people and figure it out. It would probably, at this point, because it's already been approved for clinical use, we'd probably try to set up a clinical trial. It's getting the funding to do it. And that's what we're trying to figure out. Yeah, and just let me quickly talk about the magnetic fields. Um, because that is a, a company, because they have a, a recent hint of activity in uh, a subset of lung cancer patients, that that sort of falls not only in the hands of us sort of funding a, a, a project through a grant. It involves a back-and-forth discussion with the company through the, the committee that Lee referenced called Brokers of Osteosarcoma Progress, which is how do we provide them the domain knowledge to do, do something within their business that they may not ordinarily do, which is to do an osteosarcoma clinical trial. And that's not just about money. It's about making it easy for them to allocate their resources to do a clinical trial in osteosarcoma where they ordinarily may pursue lung cancer or pancreas cancer or others. Let me just say, uh, Christina, because I saw Chelsea Banks wrote this, the grand cycle information session is going to be held Wednesday, September 13th at 2 p.m. Central Time. Thank you, Chelsea. Great. So everyone put that date on your calendar. Um, and uh, so cutting edge therapies, you guys mentioned this at, at the top um, of kind of what some of the grants are focused on. And so just curious what you're most excited about um, in cutting edge technologies and where do you see the most potential? I'm, I'm very excited about figuring out how to make the immune system work. We just, we will do that, I believe. I just saw some data where it's looking like it's starting to even have activity in pancreatic cancer, which is another tumor that has had no progress made. Um, so I think I'm very excited about, and that includes CAR T cells, checkpoint inhibitors, NK, CAR NK cells, um, and others, and uh, mRNA vaccines. Actually, I just read a study where they did mRNA vaccines in the pancreatic cancer patients. So Sean can tell you, I used to say there's no mRNA vaccine in, a, in cancer is worthless because if we can't make it work in a virus where you only have to attack one protein, it's never going to work in something as complex as a human tumor. But they made it work in COVID. That was our first RNA vaccine to work. Now, I think we realize we're learning so much um, that we will be able to make RNA vaccines work in some patients, and I hope in some osteosarcoma patients. Very excited about that. As I said, I'm very excited about uh, understanding the chaotic genome and how we can take advantage of that. Similar to what Sean was saying about, you know, it's been around for 65 million years, so it's sticking in our genome for a reason. We need to flip the switch. So I'm encouraged about that. I'm very encouraged about those studies being done on the tumor microenvironment that may help us push immunotherapy and make it work better. Um, and of course, I'm very interested in understanding what's junk and what's important in the chaotic genomes so we can focus on the things that are important. Because right now it's like just, you know, throwing a dart somewhere. We just can't, um, we can't seem to identify the critical Achilles heel. So those are just some of the things I'm, I'm very excited about. Dr. Connor, do you want to throw in your two cents before we close out? No, I just, I guess I would just echo the, um, the immunotherapy angle. And I think what we, believe in osteosarcoma is that some of the failure is related to the immunosuppression around the tumor created by the osteosarcoma tumor itself and figure out how we sort of stop that immunosuppression to allow immunotherapy to work is really exciting to me. And I think there's some good ideas out there. I want to just add one last thing because I know people are listening and Christine, I know how much you think about this. We also know that the late effects of patients who are cured with our current therapy is unacceptable. We have to do better, not just in new therapies. We have to understand that our curative therapy is a huge toll to them. And so even our effective therapy needs improvement. How we do that, I don't know, but I'm really interested in following up and understanding how we can mitigate long-term side effects because they're terrible.
Thanks for bringing that up. And thank you both for your insights and for joining us today on Osteobites and making it better for both four and two legs sarcoma patients. And more information on this and all Osteobites can be found on the MIB Agents YouTube channel, on our website at mibagents.org and at your favorite podcast place. And um, when we follow up with our email to a, a link of this recording, we'll also put in some of the information on the, um, the open house session for the OSI grant cycle um, and where you can get more information on that. Please join us next week on August 3rd. We're going to be talking to Dr. Scott Okuno, a medical oncologist with specialty interest in bone and soft tissue sarcoma from the Mayo Clinic. And he is also the chief medical officer of SARC, which is the Sarcoma Alliance for Research Through Collaboration. And so we'll be talking to Dr. Okuno about SARC trials, um, also SARC grants, um, their new tumor board, and the importance of patient voice. Um, you can learn more about SARC and their initiatives, and Dr. Akuno and our own MIB Agents Executive Director, Ann Graham, will also discuss how SARC and MIB Agents collaborate to leverage each organization's strengths. Um, you can find our Osteobites lineup for the next few months on our website, and if you have any ideas for future topics you'd like to hear about, please share them with us at events at mibagents.org. Thank you again, Dr. Hellman, Dr. Kana Vanessa, and for all of you for spending an hour with us today. And we hope to see you back here next week on Osteobites when we chat with Dr. Akuno. Thanks everyone.